listening to Breast Cancer Connection, where we connect you with breast cancer experts on what you need to know to navigate your experience. Hi, I'm Kathy Mandalea, and today we're talking about understanding breast cancer type and stage. In today's episode, we will discuss how to understand the language that a cancer diagnosis brings and what that means for making decisions about treatments. For many, this new language includes the discussion of knowing your type of tumor, understanding the stage, and the tumor biology and why that is important. Helping us understand what doctors mean when they talk about breast cancer stage and type is our guest expert, Dr. Sandeep Sadeb. Sandy is a medical oncologist and lead of the Breast Cancer Medical Oncology Group at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center. Thank you for joining us, Sandy. Well, thank you for having me. Breast cancer is not necessarily one diagnosis, as we all have learned over the years. There are different types of breast cancer. Can you tell us briefly about these? Yeah, so indeed, it gets back to the principle that we really nowadays individualize how we approach a patient's cancer based upon their cancer fingerprint. Um, The word types is also a bit confusing because we use the word type of breast cancer in many different ways. So I like to think of types of breast cancer uh, almost like we think of, uh, you know, uh, breeds of dogs. There are common types of breast cancers, and then there are some we don't see very often. Uh, That tells us really what kind of disease we're dealing with. And the garden variety type of breast cancer uh, of the invasive type, the real full-blown breast cancers, arise from the ducts, you know, that carry the milk in the breast, and they're called invasive ductal breast cancer. Uh, There are some breast cancers that actually arise, maybe 15% of them, that arise from the glands that make the milk. And those are actually called lobular breast cancers. And those are the two most common overarching types of breast cancer. And then there are some weird and wonderful rare types, some that are actually sarcomas, that if you're thinking again of the dog analogy, you know, comparing breeds, they're like a fox. They're completely different and they're treated almost like a different disease. So we have these overarching types, but mm-hmm. patients often get, again, overwhelmed. and they, they get confused between the type of breast cancer and the other features of it that help direct our discussions. So I tell most of my patients that I see that you basically have a garden variety of breast cancer, the lobular and ductal really have a lot in common and are treated very, very similarly. So that's kind of the type discussion. That's very interesting. So uh, would you agree that the type and the stage are two different topics? And now that we're entering into the discussion of stage of the tumor, how does that differentiate when you're uh, delivering the message to your patient? So usually I'll tell a patient when we're first diagnosing them, that they have what we still consider early stage breast cancer if it's not disseminated. So, you know, the only stage that really is very, very different is the stage four. Stage four is where the cancer has traveled anywhere else in the body, you know, commonly lungs, liver, bones, well, anywhere really. And that stage traditionally is considered as not curable. The cancer has already manifested itself elsewhere. It must have scattered through the system to get there. And they're very treatable and often treatable for many years, but it becomes more of a long-term disease process then. All the other stages, one, two, and three, again, reflecting how much disease there was at the beginning, um, really are still considered earlier stages. And the goal there is to cure the cancer or keep it cured. Stage one is usually small, like less than two centimeters, not in the armpit, Stage two would be larger than two centimeters or in the armpit. Either way, 
it indicates a, a more of a concerning prognosis. And stage three might be jumbo size, bigger than five centimeters or in many, many lymph nodes in the armpit. And all those things help us play bookie really to help estimate looking back at our decades of experience, you know, what is that person's risk that the cancer may already have traveled in a hidden way somewhere else and is destined to come back later incurably. That's why the stage is important. It helps us really tell how concerned should we and the patient be about their chance of having it come back throughout the body later. Those patients are not curable. And then we can decide how important is it for us to give extra medications or extra treatments to help save life and prevent traveling of the cancer in the future. So that's where the stage comes in. The, um, the biology of the cancer, what I call the features, the personality of the cancer, are all the other things. Is it estrogen positive or estrogen friendly? I've heard patients say, uh, does it have progesterone receptors, triple negative, HER2? Those are the biological features we get from the microscope and from lab tests that also tell us, is it a more aggressive kind? It helps tip the scale in terms of our level of worry. And those features actually tell us specifically what we can do about them. If it's an estrogen-driven cancer, giving anti-estrogen pills that are usually fairly easy can dramatically help prevent cancer recurrence. Uh, if it's the HER2 kind, we have drugs that block that HER2 signaling receptor that can dramatically help prevent recurrence of the cancer also in the future. And if it's triple negative, then we have to use chemotherapy preventatively. So the features tell us what to do. The stage tell us how worried we should be and whether we have to do something more or not. But at the end of the day, I always try to reassure patients with stage one, two, and three that our goal is to make sure their cancer is cured and to guide us on how much more work we have to do in the beginning and how worried we should be in the future. Hmm. And so the word stage, do you think that when you put a numeric uh, number uh, after the word stage, it creates a little bit of fear in your patients? Yes, I think it does for sure. I mean, stage four, of course, you know, when they hear that, you can imagine from Hollywood, they think, oh my God, it's game over. And, you know, and, and they fear for their lives and the impact on their lives. And uh, I have many patients with stage four disease that are doing well for five to 15 years with treatment. Nowadays, many times we can control their cancers. For the stage one, two, and three, I think patients do get frightened when they hear they have a higher stage. But that's where the education and teaching comes in. I'll tell a patient that if it has stage two or stage three, of course, we have to be more concerned. There's a higher chance that it may already be hiding elsewhere in your body. But that's why we have these medicines that can help. That's why we do medications that sometimes are difficult or inconvenient because it's worth it and they can help tip the scales uh, back in your favor and get us to a better place. Sometimes if you've had stage two and it has good biology, good features, preventative therapies will get the prognosis even better than a stage one with ugly features. So we have to really educate patients. It's not just the stage. It's also the personality, the biological fingerprint that all we look at all together. And we try to give patients, you know, approximate numbers to help guide them understanding, you know, what their prognosis actually is. So if we're talking late stage, this is always something that is more worrisome to hear. Can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, when we tell a patient that they have stage four disease, that is often the hardest part of our job. And it's the most stressful day for the patient. 
um, because it does imply that, you know, it's not curable usually. There's rare miracles that we see. There are some patients with HER2 positive disease that I've had that have been 12, 15 years out with no cancer showing after their treatment. But generally, it means we're in it together for the long haul. But, you know, obviously, that's a very scary discussion to have with patients. But then again, we individualize the discussion to give people a context to that. If they have an estrogen positive kind of breast cancer, um, you know, the and even the HER2 positive kind, the treatments can be so effective and then they work slowly and steadily like anti-estrogens and new drugs we have called CDK4-6 inhibitors that are tablets that are very well tolerated. They're not chemotherapy. They're so effective that those patients end up living with a chronic disease, almost, you might, almost like you might live with, you know, a medium case of diabetes or emphysema, something you cannot cure, but you can live with often for many years. And in fact, um, because breast cancer is more common as women get older, a lot of these patients will often succumb to old age, you know, with their cancer. I often give the analogy of Olivia Newton-John, and you may know better than I, I think she had recurrence of her disease in her bones about 26 years after her stage one breast cancer. It means it had to have been sleeping there for all that time before it woke up. And that was about six or seven years ago. And she's asymptomatic. She's still working. She's raising money for cancer research in Australia. And and, and that's a very typical example of how our patients can do. Um, the most accurate with anti-estrogens prognostic factor that helps tell a patient how long their life might be because they usually do pass away from the cancer if they have stage four, is actually not the high-tech stuff. It's actually how they feel. If they've lost a lot of weight, like, you know, Jack Layton, when he has serious cancer, we all saw how he lost that weight so quickly and, and succumbed to it. Uh, if they're losing a lot of weight, if they're in bed because of severe fatigue, those are indicators we have to be concerned and their survival prognosis might be shorter. If they're feeling well or have no symptoms or minimum symptoms, they often are keepers. And we, we joke about that. And often we end up seeing them for checkups only three to four times a year, long-term. Um, it's only possible to really tell what the prognosis is there after we've had some time under our belt. You know, it's to get a feel for how they're doing, how the treatments are working. And then they kind of build that confidence back. They've got a few notches in their belt. They're working, they're living, they're enjoying their lives. And they start to feel, hey, I can live with this. And now if we move beyond the stage and we go into the discussion of biology of the tumor, so I would consider that the third pillar. So we have the types, we have the stage and now the biology. So your physician is discussing with you the biology or the feature of your tumor. Could you explain a little further what that means when you're discussing this? Yeah. So again, I tell the patient's analogy, it's like we're the bookie at the racetrack, looking at that horse, you know, they're all of their features, their pedigree, their track history, who the jockey is. We're looking at many things about the cancer that help tip the scales in their prognosis one way or the other, and help to inform us what we can do for that patient, what will work and not work to help prevent spread in the future. Uh, because we don't have cures when it does travel, that work in the beginning is awfully important to get right, so we don't have to look back later. So what do we look at? Well, there's old-fashioned stuff under the light microscope. For example, um, we talked about the, um, the size and the stage, but what about in the arteries and veins that are in the cancer? Do we see cancer cells floating in them? That's called vascular invasion or blood vessel invasion. That can be one predictor. 
Um, that's an old-fashioned feature. The other uh, ones we looked at now since at least the 80s have to do with estrogen and progesterone, the two key female hormones. Estrogen is like a, uh, as a hormone, is like a signal key that goes in through a keyhole, which we call the estrogen receptor, and tells sensitive cells what to do when the breast should make milk, when the uterus should have a cycle. And if those estrogen keyholes called receptors and progesterone receptors are on the cancer cells, that often indicates a slower disease biology, sometimes a better prognosis, and it informs us that giving anti-estrogens that basically either block the keyhole or take away the key, they lower the estrogen, can help prevent any rogue cancer cells that could have already traveled from ever coming back. It helps the body kill them off. So we look at estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors. Uh, the newer thing since about 2005 is HER2. And I try to have patients visualize HER2 as a signaling protein on the outside of the breast cells. They're there on most breast cells. And then about 20% of breast cancer patients, there are too many of them. And when there's too many of them, they act as a gas pedal that signals that cell to grow faster and spread more. So it used to be the worst kind of breast cancer. And now because we have particular high-tech antibodies that turn that receptor off and help tell the immune system to kill that cell, now that actually has the best prognosis because we can then do something about it. So the estrogen progesterone receptor called ERPR and the HER2 are the main ones we look at. What if they're all negative? If we don't have estrogen and progesterone to target with anti-estrogens, if we don't have HER2 to shut off, then we call the patient triple negative. We call the cancer triple negative. And those other treatments won't work. And in those patients, chemotherapy actually works very well. They do have a worse prognosis. It has a higher risk of recurrence. It's more dangerous. But chemotherapy, pound for pound, works better in those patients as a preventative. And even though chemotherapy is not nice to go through, uh, it definitely is worth the misery you know, for a few months to help tip the scales back in her favor. And somehow it's the understanding always that if you're given chemotherapy as a treatment, you must be doing worse than, than others who do not receive chemotherapy. So there is a little bit of confusion around treatment and treatment options or plans designed by the physician and the patient. So there should be a little more clarity around this, correct? If, if chemotherapy is given, it doesn't mean necessarily their cancer is badder. It just means that chemotherapy works in that kind of cancer. So if you have a small stage one triple negative, you probably will be recommended chemo because it's pound for pound a higher risk. Whereas if you have a stage two strongly estrogen sensitive breast cancer, you probably don't need chemo in many cases. We have better tests to help us with that now. Um, so, you know, it's not always just about you know, chemo means it's bad. That's not quite the way it works. It's really individualized for that cancer's features and what would work and not work. And we're able to show with tools like NHS Predict, uh, we used to have one called Adjuvant Online, we would show patients, we can show them bar graphs and say, this is your chance of it recurring if we don't do anything, if we give this treatment or that treatment, and we really can help patients understand that it is worthwhile. I think many patients would not want to go through adjuvant or preventative chemo for maybe a 1% benefit. But generally, if it's a 5%, 10%, or a bigger life-saving benefit, they do want to go through it. And uh, of course, the side effects now, as you know, uh, are much easier and, and less dangerous than they used to be you know, 30 years ago when I graduated.
Right, right, right. So if we're talking about misconceptions around the different breast cancers and stages and types and what this all means, how do you think this impacts the prognosis of a patient? So uh, generally speaking, the triple negative kind is the kind that tends to have the worst prognosis. Uh, Faster uh, chemotherapy works well for them, but it also always stops working. Uh, We have a lot of new advances coming through the pipeline now, and we do, in fact, for every type of breast cancer. Um, Patients are living longer and better with stage four than they ever did. I'm convinced, although I'm an eternal optimist, that we are going to cure stage four disease more and more. But we'll cure it by dividing and conquering and getting this treatment for this type and this treatment for that type, and even better understanding unique aspects of their biology, the genes that make them tick, targeting those. One day we'll get there. Uh, But but right now, you know, that is the worst kind. For an estrogen-sensitive breast cancer, which are about, you know, um, often 75, 80% of breast cancers, the anti-estrogens can keep the patient's cancers controlled for at least four to five years. So, you know, it it really has to be individualized. When I've done some um, radio call-in shows before where patients call in, you know, sometimes they hear that uh, and, you know, we focus a lot on good news. We try to be optimistic, but it doesn't really pertain to an individual patient situation. So they need to have those discussions very frankly with their own oncology team, you know, have an honest discussion. Uh, It is important that they're part of the team, that they understand things well to guide us what they want to do or don't want to do. Um, But, uh, you know, that has to be really individualized. I see. So Dr. Sadev, once you've had all the information about a person's cancer stage, tumor biology, etc., how does this information help you develop a personalized treatment plan for that individual? Well, initially, the easy part is the medical part. We all follow pretty much international guidelines, you know. So if it's uh, an estrogen-positive breast cancer, we will be using anti-estrogens. If they have stage 4 estrogen-positive disease, we add in these drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors that basically help to turn off the clock timer in the cells that tell one cell to divide in two. So that helps us direct that. If they're triple negative, we use chemotherapy and we use another second chemo or a third chemo in turn if one stops working. Uh, we have new treatments now coming out for that kind of cancer, some that are immunotherapies that help the immune system go after the cancer. And if they're HER2 positive breast cancers, the HER2 is often a key driver of what makes that cancer tick. And with the other treatments, we always partner them with some kind of medicine to try to shut off the HER2. Trastuzumab and pertuzumab are both uh, so-called monoclonal antibodies. They're biologically engineered antibodies that are designed not to go after an infection like tetanus or the flu or COVID, but to go after the HER2, shut it off, block its signaling, help direct the immune system to kill that. So that's how I think we individualize how we approach the treatment is based really upon the biology. But we also have to individualize it based upon the patient. If a patient has many other serious health problems, you know, when they're older, they're probably more likely to pass away of those problems. It could be Alzheimer's or, you know, heart disease, and we can take a much gentler approach and a very simple approach to keep them well and not to have to be very aggressive. And lastly, if we have a patient whose personal preference is not to have chemotherapy or not to have strong treatments, we certainly don't give up on those patients. We try to support them in their interest in alternative therapies. We always continue to help them with supportive care, meaning measures to help their symptoms, 
uh, make sure they're as well as they can be, help their body live with the cancer well, uh, because there are some patients that for their own personal reasons uh, may not want to follow the standard recommendations and we have to approach them also. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about biopsies. Often you will almost always have a biopsy of a tumor if it's a, a mass that you can have a, a biopsy taken, right? What does the biopsy reveal and how are the t- tumor cells analyzed? Yeah, so biopsy is frequently referring to, you know, putting a, a wider core needle or plucking out a small sample of cancer. And basically, it's helping us determine, is it cancer if we're not sure? Is it the same cancer or is it a different cancer? Um, and uh, what are the cancer features? So, you know, to turn the clock back in our discussion, for the early stage breast cancer, one, two, and three, a biopsy is the first step in the diagnosis. It then tells the patient you do have breast cancer, and they then have the discussion with the surgeon about what to do about it, based upon the size, based upon their breast shape, and how best to approach that. We also do biopsies in patients with stage 4. If they have stage 4 and it's come back spread in their body years later, sometimes those biological characteristics, that personality, can change, and then the treatment would change. So we often take a needle or a sample of the cancer in the bone, liver, lungs, and analyze it to first make sure it is the breast cancer, and secondly, to reassess those features in case they've changed so we can customize how we treat that patient then. That's right. That's right. So oncologists will often talk through the results of uh, biopsy and testing, as we've been discussing, but sometimes it could be a lot to take in for patients. Is there somewhere an individual can access the results? And do you think it's a good idea for individuals to access the results? Yes, I do. Uh, Although uh, it it can be a mixed blessing. Uh, There are some patients who, by nature, have a lot of anxiety issues. And because there's so much jargon in the results, it's very easy to misunderstand them. So uh, I often encourage patients, if I'm, you know, usually I'll have an appointment booked with them very shortly after any test is done. So I'll encourage patients to uh, wait for our discussion. Let us go over it together so I can paint the scene of what's going on and I can help translate it for them live. And then they can read it at depth, you know, more after our discussion and come back with further questions they may have. Uh, I've had many patients that have misread a scan result online and they didn't sleep for, you know, one or two weeks until we had our appointment. Um, One patient years ago when I was in Toronto assumed the worst, um, left his family, different kind of cancer, uh, went back to Egypt, thought he was going to pass away, and misinterpreted his test completely. We couldn't find him for months to tell him that it was actually good news. So it's very important that patients, you know, uh, be part of the team. They understand the results. And also, they have the right not to have to look at those things. If they're taking part in an electronic, you know, platform, they can set them usually not to send scan results, pathology results, until the doctor's appointment. Because it can be, you know, very frightening for them, especially if they're not sure how to interpret all the jargon. I like patients, though, to be empowered, you know, to answer your question, to be part of the team, to understand the issues well, um, but understand them the way I want my own family to understand them. Exactly. I think the the best is exactly what you just said. I should say to always have an extra pair of ears with them during that discussion. It can be a friend, a family, a spouse, uh, not because people are not bright, but because it's human nature. You know, when you're scared, things go out the other ear. So even myself, if I, if I see a physician, I might 
spouse might come with me. If it's anything serious or for my family's health, I'll go with them. I try to always have a spouse or relative take part in our discussions as the extra pair of ears so they can kind of reinforce the discussion when they go home. There's a very good website that I developed actually in Canada called mypathologyreport.ca. And if they go to that, because increasingly patients have access to their data now online, you know, on my chart, for example, in Ottawa, they can read all their raw pathology reports, their scan results. They can go to mypathologyreport.ca and it helps to translate the keywords in the report and make it more understandable to them. We also have programs from England, uh, one called NHS Predict, where we can punch in their cancer stage and features and their age. And we can tell them that based upon historical experience over decades, you know, with these different treatments, this is what your chance of life and death will be. And patients usually find that very reassuring. And they realize that most patients with early stage breast cancer are cured nowadays, especially after going through the extra effort, you know, with preventive medications and radiation and such. So I think those kinds of tools that um, output clear language and simple to understand uh, terminology are very, very helpful. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today. Thank you again, Dr. Sidev, for the great conversation. For more resources or support, visit cbcn.ca or find us on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and join us next time for another episode of Breast Cancer Connection.